I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Today we are considering the line in the creed, I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Ghost. Now as you're turning in your Bible, I want to ask a a question off the top, which I think is a, a question that's worth asking, and it's this. Why is it that so little word count is devoted in the creed to the Holy Ghost? Why is that? So the, the Holy Ghost is another name for the Holy Spirit. That's what we refer to him as in, in our church. Um, elsewhere, he's referred to in scripture as the paraclete or the helper. We're talking about the same person. This is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Ghost. Uh, Wayne Grudem summarizes God in this way. He says, God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God. And there is one God. So that's important. You hear what he said there. Each person is fully God. So the Holy Spirit is a person, which is to say he's not a, some force or some power that comes out of God. He is in himself God, the third person of the Trinity, equal with the Father, equal with the Son. That's why we baptize believers in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells every Christian. Galatians 4, 6 says, because you are sons or, or daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So if you're a child of God, then the Holy Spirit is in you. Charles Spurgeon said, he, that is the Holy Spirit, is your credentials as a Christian. He's your life as a believer. So hearing all that, the Holy Ghost is important. So why is it then that he gets one line in this creed? Whereas we've just spent an entire section unpacking the person and work of the Son, Jesus Christ. Is it because the Holy Ghost isn't as important as the Son? Isn't equal with the Son? Well, no, it's none of those reasons. Uh, So I want to just, before we move any further, I want to give you two reasons why it is that we see this disproportionality in the word count. So much devoted to the Son, this one line devoted to the Spirit. The first reason is just very practical. When this creed was written... The pressing issue of the day was this debate about Jesus. So you had heresies springing up saying that Jesus wasn't truly divine. And another heresy saying, no, he he was divine, but he wasn't truly man. So this was the battleground in the early church. And they devoted a lot of word count to making it clear where they stood. There wasn't much debate about the Holy, Holy Ghost until about the fourth century. But So that's part of the reason why, you know, this is the battleground of the day. But I would say the primary reason why we see this disproportionality in the word count, and this is really important, it's this. Those early believers who wrote the creed understood that we are meant to fix our attention on the Lord Jesus Christ. That as we look at Jesus, we see the glory of the Godhead. So for example... Uh, Philip was talking to Jesus and he said, you know, I want to see the Father. Jesus answered Philip and he said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. See what he said? Jesus said, the Father has revealed himself to you through me. If you want to understand the character of the Father and the glory of the Father, look at me. The Apostle Paul pointed to Jesus and he said, he is the image of the invisible God. In fact, the more that we come to understand about the Holy Ghost the more we're going to want to talk about and delight in and glory in the Son, Jesus Christ. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. Jesus 
pointing to the Holy Ghost who was coming, who he was going to send. Jesus said, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus said, the Holy Ghost is going to come, and he's going to be like a magnifying glass, just glorifying me, magnifying me, helping you to understand what I taught you. That's what the Spirit delights to do. Al Mohler has a great quote here. He says, where you find the Spirit of God present, you do not find so much testimony about the Holy Spirit as you find a testimony about Christ. Where you find, therefore, a bold, biblical, urgent, accurate, enthusiastic, joyful, life-changing testimony of Christ, you can rest assured that the Holy Spirit is vibrantly at work. So why this disproportionate word count? Because in a sense, it's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way that God has ordained it. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The Father has sent the Son, and the Spirit magnifies the Son, and Jesus reveals the invisible God to us. And he redeems, and he restores. So it's not an indication of importance, it's an indication of appropriate emphasis. I just think that's helpful for us to understand as we begin to turn our attention to the Holy Ghost. But having said all that, having, having kind of warned that we don't want to get this proportion out of order, can I just say, in our little sliver of evangelicalism, I would say that we've probably gone too far in this respect. I would say that we've actually, at times, disregarded the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about who he is or what he is, what he is doing in our midst. And that is to our detriment. And so today I'm excited that we get to unpack this. And I will tell you just as I was preparing, and, and I even talked to Pastor Paul about this, we just feel like we need to, to, to give a real effort into bolstering our understanding of the Spirit here in this church. We need to understand these things. And so to that end, look with me now to our text. We're going to be in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 11. We're, got, we're not going to be able to say nearly all of the things that we'd like to say about the Holy Spirit today. Uh, we're just scratching the surface and so our approach is going to be a focused approach. We're going to jump in where we left off last week. And we, we're going to just unpack this now as we understand the Holy Ghost and how he's working in our midst. So hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 11. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we turned our attention to this text last week. And last week our emphasis was on the, uh, the coming return of Christ, right? He will come as you saw him go. So we looked at the, the return that was promised. We also looked at the assignment that he gave to us, right? He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We talked about that assignment. And, and did you feel the weight of it? 
You know, we looked out our window, we looked at our neighbor's houses, we considered the eternal souls that are living on our streets, and it feels like a weighty task, doesn't it? That in a world that is hostile to the gospel, we are going to be the witnesses. It becomes even weightier when we begin to consider the, the messengers. Like when we look at ourselves, I don't know about you, but I looked in the mirror last week and I just thought, Lord, I, if I was building a team for world evangelism, I wouldn't put me on it. I, I just wouldn't. And yet here we are. God's entrusted us to this task. And I, got a, I received a couple of texts last week. People saying, oof, you know, that, I feel like that sermon just kicked me right in the gut. You know, we, we all felt the weightiness of the assignment. We looked at the task and we looked at ourselves and we felt very discouraged. So I thought, well, what an appropriate time for us to come back to this text. Remember when we talked a few weeks, about, a weeks ago about two-handed works? Do you remember that? There are one-handed works in the Bible. That is, there are things that God does himself. We, didn't, we don't have our hands on it. Salvation, for example. The Bible describes us as being dead in our sin. We're dead. But then God, he picks us up and he breathes his life into us and he inspires repentance and renewal. And That's a God thing, right? God did that. But we also find two-handed works. Things that seem impossible, but God calls us to work at them. And as we work at them, he enables us. Evangelism is such a work. It feels like it's impossibly heavy, but he says, I want you to push. I want you to go and be my witnesses. And as we push, God lifts. I feel like maybe we lost sight of that last week. We got so overwhelmed looking at the impossibility of the assignment that we forgot the power that God promised to us. Right before the assignment, that's what Jesus said. Acts 1, verse 8. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, it's not as if Jesus had some naive overestimation about the abilities of his disciples or the abilities of, of these disciples, of you and I. It's not as if Jesus didn't understand that you and I are, we're weak and we can be cowardly at times and we can become flustered and we're not great with our words. Jesus sees all of that. But here's the thing. He's not concerned in the slightest. He's not. He's still entrusting us with the assignment. Why? It's because he's also given us power. He's given us all that we need. So today I want to make sure that we understand just what that means, what that entails. Why is it that Jesus can entrust us with this impossible assignment with such great confidence? What is this power of the Holy Spirit working in us that we need to understand? Well, let's ask the question, in what ways does the Holy Spirit empower us? If you remember earlier in Jesus' ministry, the disciples were struggling with this reality that eventually Jesus would be leaving them. And so he sat them down and he said to them, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now try and put yourself in the place of the disciples here. Remember, Jesus has been healing the sick, healing the blind. He's been walking on water. He's been feeding 5,000. So Jesus has done some remarkable things. In the midst of all of that, he's, he's teaching the crowds with this authority that they've never seen before. And Jesus sits down with his disciples and he says, hey, guess what? I'm going to leave and that's going to be good for you. At which point, every disciple is probably in his head thinking, no, it is not, Jesus. It is not going to be good for us if you leave. But Jesus says, it's going to be good. Now listen, maybe it's hard for us to put ourselves in the place of the disciples, but let's try for a moment. Imagine this. Imagine right now, Jesus came to you and he said, listen, 
I'm willing to make a trade. I will come and I will minister at Redeemer City Church. I will minister in the flesh in the city of Aurelia. And all you got to do is you need to trade the power of the Holy Spirit in and amongst all your people. So if you, if you surrender that, then I will come and I will minister in the flesh. How many of us would make that trade? And be honest now. All right, just think about what that would do to Aurelia if Jesus was here and he's healing sick people and preaching the gospel and he's out in the streets and casting out demons. Just imagine what would happen in this city. Would you make that trade? Well, according to Jesus, here's the crazy thing. He says, we would be fools to make that trade. It's better for us, he says, that he is gone and that his spirit is indwelling each of us as his church. It's better for us that all of us are walking in and amongst this city filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't think that we understand that yet. I don't think we believe that yet. Or else we wouldn't have felt so horribly inadequate last week. So let's turn our attention now to this text. Let's consider to, let's continue to flesh this out. So if you have your Bible open still to Acts chapter 1, I want you to flip ahead a page to Acts chapter 2. This is where we see the promise of the the helper, of the Holy Spirit. This is where we see the promise fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Look with me, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude all came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear? each of us in his own native language. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. In what way does the Holy Spirit empower us? Well, the first thing we see here is that he empowers our witness. That's the first and most obvious lesson that we see here in this scene at Pentecost. If you remember, Jesus, in our text this morning from Acts 1, Jesus had just commissioned his disciples to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the world, world, and to be his witnesses. So now you've got the disciples sitting in a room, and I would imagine some of them are saying, how are we going to witness to the ends of the world? We don't even speak the languages. Right? How long is it going to take us to learn all these languages? They're counting the, the guys in the room saying, we, even if we divvy this up, it's, it's impossible. Suddenly the Holy Spirit fills them, empowers them, and they start to speak. And as they open their mouths, the gospel is being proclaimed in all of these different languages that they've never learned. And crowds are gathering, and people are hearing the gospel preached in their language. And right there, in that very moment, the disciples learned the lesson that he will empower us for the assignment we've been entrusted with. The Holy Spirit will empower our witness. That was the lesson immediately on day one. And you know, when I think about the, our struggles that we face here as, as modern day Christians with evangelism, 
I think the number one problem, the number one problem we face is not our lack of love for our neighbors, is not our lack of, of longing for, for God's worship to go forth in our city. I, I truly believe the number one problem is that we're just so afraid of what we'll say. We feel so inadequate. We wonder, like, ah, you know, we're worried. I don't know what I'll say. What if they ask this? What if they ask this? We're, we're worriers. But in the Bible, Jesus tells us we sh- we're not supposed to be that kind of people. So, for example, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 19 to 20, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. It's not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. See, when we understand the way that the Holy Spirit empowers our witness, suddenly evangelism is less about an exercise in in our intellect, and it's more about an exercise of our faith. You hear that? It's less about an exercise of your intellect. It's more about an exercise of your faith. So if you're here and you're like, I'm a new Christian. I don't feel like I understand everything. I feel like there are some questions that would floor me. Jesus is leaning and saying, hey, you have received power. You've received power. Stop worrying about what you will say. He's going to empower your witness. He's going to give you the words to speak. And more than that, Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit is going to give our listeners ears to hear. If you remember in that text when Jesus told us it was good that he was going to go, let's, let's read a little further. Okay, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And then what's going to happen, Jesus? And when he comes, what will he do? He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So Jesus says, it's good for you that I'm going. You know why? Because the world is full of hard-hearted people, just like who you were, right? People whose heart, they're not going to be convicted as you preach your best sermon, as you share your best gospel presentation. They're not going to be changed. You know what will change them though? The Holy Spirit bringing about conviction. So it's good for you that I'm leaving because none of your sermons, none of your evangelism is going to do a thing until the Holy Spirit brings conviction in the heart. And he'll do it. Robert Murray McShane says, the first work of the Spirit on the natural heart is to reprove the world of sin. Although he's the Spirit of love, although a dove is his emblem, although he be compared to the soft wind and the gentle dew, still his first work is to convince of sin. So that is true of all preaching ministry, church, which is why I would plead with you to pray for me as I preach on Sundays or whoever's bringing the word. Pray for us because we could study for 20, 30, 40 hours. We could put together our best outline that we think is coherent and makes sense. We could pepper it with illustrations that are going to make sense in our culture. We could preach it with as much enthusiasm as we can muster to the point that we want to fall over when we're done. We could put our heart into this. But unless the Holy Spirit brings conviction, it is nothing. It's nothing. Pray for us as we preach. And in the same way, we pray for you and we need to pray for one another as we evangelize because it is the same thing. You know, um, I've told you this before, but Charles Spurgeon, whenever he would walk into the pulpit, Charles Spurgeon was the prince of preachers, that's what we called him. Just the greatest preacher. If anyone had any reason to trust in their own abilities, it was Charles Spurgeon. But as he walked into the pulpit each time, he prayed under his breath, I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Ghost. Why? Because he understood this. He understood that it doesn't matter 
how gifted he is. It doesn't matter how well he can put words together if the Holy Spirit doesn't bring conviction. And it's true for your evangelism as well. You know, I know you could spend all your days trying to draft the perfect plan, which, P.S., isn't that kind of what we do in our neighborhood evangelism? Right, try and put together the perfect plan. You could bring a little gospel tract and you could put your neighbor's favorite dessert in a plate on top. You could put a $100 bill on top of that, slide it across to them. You could, you could give them a memorized gospel presentation that is the best gospel presentation this world's ever seen. Crystal clear. But you know, apart from the Holy Spirit bringing conviction, they're going to stare back at you with eyes glazed over. Right? There will be no fruit, no change. Which is why, church, I would, just, I would encourage you, I'm encouraging myself, I would say let's spend less time stressing and plotting and let's spend more time praying and stepping out in faith. Just pray and ask and then do. And watch what God does in our midst. Here's a challenge for us. A challenge for you. You know, we talked about reaching our neighborhood. Here's an assignment. Spend every day this week, when you roll out of bed in the morning, just pray and ask that the Holy Spirit would soften the hearts of those people on your street. That the Holy Spirit would give you an opportunity to share the gospel. That he would give you the words to speak. Just ask for it specifically. Maybe you've got a neighbor in mind. Just ask for it. Name them. Say, just, would you do this work? Would you prepare their heart? And then as you're out walking and you see them approaching you on the sidewalk, you can pull a Charles Spurgeon as you're walking on the sidewalk. And just, just mutter, I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Ghost. And then as they get there and it feels like, oh, this heavy bar is going to crush me. I can't do this. I don't know what I'm going to do. Just in a step of faith, just push. Just open your mouth and, and say something. Just get it started. And watch what the Holy Ghost will do. Right? He empowers our witness. Empowers our words. Empowers their ears. Just watch what he will do. It's not an exercise of your intellect. It's an exercise of your faith. Just believe that he's empowered our witness. Second, the Holy Spirit empowers our unity. And maybe that sounds strange or out of place here. But as we consider this scene in Pentecost, we are meant to see here a reversal of that scene at the Tower of Babel. I don't know if you remember that scene. It's early in Genesis, and we're descending into sin. Mankind is just getting worse and worse and worse. And then in, in our pride, people come together and they say, we're going to build a tower, and we're going to build a tower that reaches the heaven. And the text never explicitly explains what was going on in their hearts, but the text explains that Jesus, or that God, is angry, right? That he sees that there is something very sinful going on in these hearts, so there's some, this is some kind of pride, some kind of rebellion. And so what God does is he causes them all to speak a multitude of different languages. And they can't communicate anymore. And they all, they go their own way. And the consistent testimony of scripture is that sin divides us. Right? But we come to this scene in Acts. And as the Holy Spirit falls upon the people, what does God do? He miraculously unites us. He undoes that curse of division that come with sin. And he brings the nations together. And he gives us a foretaste of what we were made for. You know, at the end of all of this, in the final scene, God sees all of his people together, every tribe, tongue, and nation, together, united, worshiping him. That's where the story ends. Revelation 7, for example, says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
this story ends with the diverse people of God together worshiping in unity. And that unity, when we get little glimpses and foretastes of that unity here on earth, it's a compelling witness to the world. Christian, just, I want you to hear that. Unity is witness. Jesus understood this. Jesus told us, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. When we cultivate, when God miraculously stirs up in us authentic and diverse fellowship, unity that extends beyond national lines, unity that extends beyond political spectrums, unity that extends beyond age brackets and and financial spheres, that is a compelling testimony to the world. And that's what the church is supposed to look like. But here's the thing, that unity is not humanly possible. It's something that only the Spirit of God can do in our midst. Unity is very difficult. You know, if there's one thing I've learned this year, hopefully I've learned more things than one. I've learned that technology is not my friend. But if there's another thing I've learned this year, it's that division is easy. (laughs) Division is easy. You can rip apart a church with a little piece of cloth. Division is easy. But unity, that's a work of the Spirit. The unity that was on display on the day of Pentecost was a supernatural unity. God anointed his disciples with the Holy Spirit and he taught them that the Spirit-empowered preaching of the gospel had power to knock walls of division down immediately. And he has that same power today. And we need to ask him for that, that he would empower our unity. Please, I want to just encourage you, please be praying for that in the days and weeks and months to come. He can do it. Third, the Holy Spirit empowers our holiness. We bear, Christ, we bear witness to Christ with our words, but we also bear witness with our transformed lives. Right? You know this, but let me remind you. Your freedom from addiction bears witness to the power of the gospel. Your transformed marriage bears witness to the power of the gospel. Your growth in holiness, that change in character that is evidence in your workplace, in your home, it bears witness to the power of the gospel. And that growth in holiness does not come from you, Christian. That's that's the Spirit of God working in you. I want to draw your attention back to a familiar verse. If you attend here, you've heard this verse. The Apostle Paul wrote, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, You hear that? Being transformed, meaning this is actively, it's happening to us. We're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I know that you've heard this before, but I want to say it again because we are inclined to forget this and we can become very discouraged when we do. If you are in Christ, right? if you have repented of your sin and placed your trust in Christ, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in you. And if you have the Holy Spirit in you, then he's going to help you grow. Christian, remember that. Believe that. Now, sometimes that growth is slow. Sometimes that growth is two steps forward, one step back, isn't it? Right? It's, it's two months of a healthy marriage and one month of struggle. It's two days of patience with my kids and one, one day of just losing my temper. It's two hours of purity in my thoughts and then one, one hour where I'm so tempted once again. Growth in holiness is hard, but you have received power. You have. The Holy Spirit's in you, 
and he's changing you. And that's why when you regress and you take that step back, the Holy Spirit fills you with that conviction, right? He points at that sin and he pushes you forward. Don't you feel him do that? Slowly and steadily, he's maturing you in the faith. And as you grow, that fruit of the Spirit is going to become evidence in your life. See, the Holy Spirit is growing fruit in your life. Fruit that makes Jesus look good. Galatians 5 explains the fruit. Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. The Holy Spirit is growing all of those things in you. And as those things grow in you, your life becomes a compelling testimony to the power of the gospel. He's growing it in you supernaturally. And he does it by giving supernatural power to ordinary means. Supernatural power to ordinary sermons and ordinary conversations and ordinary study times. John Calvin once said, God does not bestow his spirit on his people in order to set aside the use of his word, but rather to render it it fruitful. So John Calvin there, he gives us a good corrective. He says, God didn't send the Holy Spirit so that we could become all mystical and say, well, I don't need this anymore. I'm going to go have quiet time with the Holy Spirit and he's just going to do this stuff in me. He says, no, you're misunderstanding entirely. God has sent his Holy Spirit to us to, to bring this about in us, right? To illuminate the word, to, to pop it off the page, to apply it into our hearts, right? As he magnifies the sun and explains the word, that's how the Holy Spirit's changing us takes ordinary things and he uses them to accomplish extraordinary results. Ordinary people, ordinary sermons, ordinary study, ordinary prayer, ordinary obedience. He empowers all of those things to do extraordinary work. The extraordinary work of taking broken, sinful people like you and me and turning us into people who reflect the glory of Christ in this world. He does that. Now, there's so much more we could say this morning, but I want to end with this one last point. How does the Holy Spirit empower us? He empowers our perseverance. Listen, the Christian life is not easy. And I just want to say that I want to be clear. Every once in a while, you run into a Christian who's shocked by that. It's like, that's not what I heard. Well, you need to hear that. The Christian life is not easy. Now, it's glorious and it's fulfilling. And it's wonderful, and it's joy-filled, and it's, it's meaningful, but it's not easy. Right? Jesus told us, he said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Right? That way is easy. Those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. Those who find it are few. It's hard. So hard, in fact, that apart from the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, not one of us would make it. I was sharing with my wife this week that uh, just on social media, my peers that I went to Bible college with, I went to a a very conservative Bible college, a Bible college where they believe the word and preach the word. I love this school. It's wonderful. But more and more and more as the years go by, I'm seeing these men and women that I studied the word with, who who paid lots of money to go and study the word to prepare for ministry, I'm watching them fall off one by one by one. 
I, I don't know the percentage, but it, it's shocking. I feel like it's, I want to say 40% of my peers that I've studied with have just renounced the faith, have gone astray. And it, I didn't expect that. And I feel it just, it hurts. But it's this. It's what Jesus said. The gate is narrow. The way is hard that leads to life. And I would fall off too, were it not for the grace of God working in me. It's a hard road. And as we walk this hard road, we've got an accuser. And he's whispering in our ear. Anything he can to try and get us off the road. He's saying, who are you, you hypocrite? He said, you're a phony. Right? You don't belong on this road and you know it and everybody knows it. You're a sham. You're no child of God. Right? He's whispering, he's whispering. But what the Bible teaches us is that if we're in Christ and we've got the power of the Holy Spirit, if the Spirit is in us, then he's whispering in the other ear. And he's speaking over the accuser. And he's telling us this, Romans 8, 16 to 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So the Spirit is saying, no, forget him. Yeah, be quiet. You're a child of God. You were a child of God. That's who you are. And yes, it's hard. Yes, you're going through suffering. Yes, of course you are. Jesus went through suffering. But you're an heir, provided you suffer with him. So that's who you are. You're going to come out on the other side. So you've got the Holy Spirit bearing witness to us. And on top of that, he seals us. Like he guarantees our faith. So to understand this language, you need to imagine in the ancient days, a king would have like a signet ring. If you can envision that. And they would have a letter and with a wax seal. And he would press the signet ring onto the seal. And it would just mark this off as an authentic letter from the king. So they would use these seals for various things. In the story of Daniel, remember they closed the the stone over Daniel and then they put this thing on it and the king comes and he seals it? That's what we're talking about here. The Apostle Paul picks up that language and here's what he says about the Spirit. He says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So he says, when you became a Christian, it's like the Holy Spirit is in you, and he's functioning like a seal, guaranteeing your authenticity. Like when the Father looks at you, he sees the seal, he sees the Spirit saying, this is your child. That's who this is. I guarantee. And the Spirit's praying for you. Did you know that? When you sit down and you, you go to pray, and you feel like, God, my heart feels cold, I feel like you can't hear me. I feel like this whole season's got me so down. I don't even know. Are you even there? When you're in your weakness, the Holy Spirit is there lifting you up. Romans 8, 26 to 27 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the Spirit's taking all of those jumbled prayers and he's, he's perfecting them and he's saying, you know, you should have asked for this and you should be asking for this and you need this. And with groanings too deep for words, he's bringing your needs to the Father. Isn't that glorious? And Jesus is sitting there at the right hand of the Father mediating for you. When you lift up those prayers that feel powerless, they are empowered by the Holy Spirit, mediated by the Son of God. Isn't that glorious? And in the midst of all of that, the Bible says the Holy Spirit is pouring the love of God 
into your heart. Romans 5.5 says this. Oh, scratch that. Before I get there, I want to read you this quote. Charles Spurgeon once said, if you could pray the best prayer in the world without the Holy Spirit, God would have nothing to do with it. Which is to say, it's not about how many seven-letter words you can work into your prayer. It's not about the eloquence of your speech. It's about the Spirit of God empowering your prayer. So be encouraged by that. And now in Romans 5.5, 5, we learn this. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So there, I just kind of imagine like this watering can and God's love for you. You know, God so loved the world that he sent his son. God loves you, Christian. We don't always feel that, do we? But God does love us. And the Holy Spirit's kind of like, imagine this watering can and he's just pouring the love of God into our hearts that we would sense and know that we are the children of God and that we are loved. And he's praying for us in our weakness. And he seals us. He's marked us off as children of God. And he's whispering in our ear, reminding us, reminding our souls of who we are. The Holy Spirit is helping us walk this difficult road. As we go about this impossible mission, right? As we look out to the nations, we look out to our street and we we hear this impossible assignment and we see our weakness. The Holy Spirit is empowering our perseverance. He's going to help us through. Now, seeing and understanding all that, I want to conclude this morning. And I want to conclude in the same place we concluded last week. Okay, so this is, this is part two. I, I want to ask you again, if you can, to get up off your couch, to walk over to your window. So do that now. Walk over to your window. And again, look out the window. And look at those houses you looked at last week. Think again about those people living in those houses. Maybe there's two people. Maybe there's five people. Think about that. Those are eternal souls. Some of whom have never heard the gospel. And God has, has called you to be the witness. He's called you to be the one who reminds them that there is salvation in Christ. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one will come to the Father except through him. He's given you that assignment. Ooh, and it feels like a heavy bar. And again, you're thinking, I can't do this. How am I going to do this? These poor people, they were stuck with me on their street. But guess what? Those poor people aren't stuck with you. They're not dependent upon you or relying upon you. Here again, this commission that Jesus gives to us. Only this time, I want you to hear him remind you of the provision. Jesus says to us, church, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Christian, you will. You have received power. And until we believe that, until we understand that and operate out of that, we're going to be limping through life looking at the task, looking at our weakness, and cowering in fear. But Jesus says, you don't need to cower in fear. You have received power. It's good for you that I went, because I've sent my helper. I've given you everything that you need. The third person of the Trinity is indwelling you. God is in you, Christian. And he's empowering your witness. And he's empowering our unity. 
and he's empowering our holiness, and he's empowering our perseverance, and he's praying for us, and he's testifying to us, and he's pouring out love, and he's giving you words to speak, and he's preparing their ears. You have power. And Jesus said, you shouldn't even trade my physical presence for this power. Do you understand what you have, church? So as we look out that window and we feel, oh, it's so heavy. As we look out and we feel so discouraged, it's not a question of, can God save these people? Listen, God can save every man and woman and boy and girl on your street. Can God give you the words to speak? He sure can. Can he give them ears to hear? He can. Can he transform their dead hearts? He can, he can, he can. It's not a question of can he. It's not a question of do I have what I need. The answer is yes and yes. So here's the question that matters. Do I believe? That's the question, church. Do I believe? So look out that window with me. And if you believe, then I want you to say these words with me again from the creed. Ready? I believe in the Holy Ghost. If you said that in faith, if you believe that, it will change everything. And we will see God do things in our midst that will blow our minds, things that can never come from us. I believe in the Holy Ghost. If you said that and you believe that, you need to know that your Heavenly Father heard you say that, and he might just give you an opportunity this week to show with your life that you believe those words that just came out of your mouth. I believe in the Holy Ghost. Let that be true of each and every one of us. And to that end, let me pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come to you today. We love you. God, I thank you. I thank you for your kindness and your mercy to us. I thank you for knocking down all the things that we put so much trust in. Lord, I thank you for a a weird day with lots of glitches. God, because I just know that for myself, and I'm sure for many of the people in our church, we have we've bought the lie that evangelism is inviting my friends to church. Evangelism is, is inviting people to see this polished presentation that happens an hour and a half a week. And that's just not true. And the plans that you have for this city, they're going to need us to see beyond that lie. So Lord, I thank you that now we have services that aren't even that polished. I wouldn't want my friends to be watching some of this at times. And that's, that's fine because, Lord, you've sent us to be your witnesses and your ambassadors. And I just pray, God, that you'd press so deep into our hearts that confidence that can only come from seeing our great God and this great provision you've given to us. I pray for, for little boys and girls who are sitting at the TV today. Lord, I just think of some of the young ones in our church. Lord, and I'm just so thankful, God, that you... Out of, the mouths of, out of the mouths of babes and infants you've adorned praise. Lord, you're going to use these little ones to, to magnify your name in our city. You're going to use people in our congregation who never finished high school to magnify your name, to, to humble the, the pride that we see in our city. Lord, that you have a plan for each and every one of us, and you're just looking for those who are obedient, those who trust you enough to, to go forth and to open their mouths and God, I just confess that I struggle with that confidence at times and I wrestle with that fear and I'm sure that I'm not the only one. Lord, I pray that you would cast that fear out of us. You didn't give us a spirit of fear. Lord, I pray that you would break our hearts for the lost that are around us. 
I pray that you'd break our hearts most of all, that, that you're worthy of the praise of every man and woman and boy and girl in this city, and you are not currently receiving it. I pray that that would just grieve us, and that we would just overflow with adoration as we go out into our neighborhoods and just tell people how amazing you are. Lord, they should be worshiping you. If they had any idea how amazing you are, our whole street would be worshiping you. Lord, so find us faithful. Help us to understand these truths. Help us to believe. Thank you for the gift of your spirit. Holy Spirit, we just thank you that you are in us. We thank you that you empower us. And we pray that we would be ever being filled by by your power, your spirit in us. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And everyone said, Amen. Worship team, would you lead us?